As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Hello, I'm Jessica Barron. I'm Vice President of Executive Search for Centennial, Inc., and you are listening to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. And today, my guest is an extremely talented, is sort of an understatement for her, individual that I've known for quite a while, and she's had a lot of impact on our community here in Cincinnati, but I think the lessons are really significant for listeners around the world, and since we are listened to in 67 different countries. Welcome, everyone, and I hope that this is significant for you. So I am speaking with Claire Zlatic Blankemeyer. She's the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at the Mayerson Foundation. She also serves as the President of Impact 100, and Claire's going to share something about both of those organizations with you and how one had informed her activities in the other and how she was able to make a difference by looking at things differently. That is the theme for today's conversation, looking at things differently. So Claire, tell us about your work at the Mayerson Foundation. First of all, tell us a little bit about the Mayerson Foundation and then your work there, and then we'll see how that expands. Perfect. Jessica, thank you so much for having me. I have been at the Mayerson Foundation now for just under 10 years, and our work as a small family private foundation is to create just, caring, and respectful communities through programming and grant making. Just in this last year, we've had a pretty big shift. We have wound down our operating programs and are solely focused on grant making in addition to our artistic excellence program at the School for Creative and Performing Arts. So what does that mean? We make transformational catalytic grants in the community in any of our areas of interest. And I serve our trustees in helping make those investments wise and smart and bringing out the best in people. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. So we actually went on a grant-making moratorium the last year to refine our grant-making. And where we netted is something called activation funding that we're currently piloting. The goal in that, in activation funding and philanthropy, is to look at what's best in people and how are nonprofits activating, accelerating, sparking what's best in people and not only looking at a deficit, what's wrong with them, poverty, disability, or whatever label might be attached to a client of a nonprofit. So I love that you asked for an example. One of the examples of an organization locally that we're working with is the Holocaust and Humanity Center. And when you think of a traditional Holocaust Center, it's one of the darkest times of our world's history in the darkest of humanity. Mm -hmm. And we worked closely with a lot of other folks in this region and Sarah Weiss at the Holocaust Center in asking the question, how do we celebrate what's best in people? Yes, I find that some organizations and some institutions, when you want people to go in, one, you have to overcome the feeling like, ooh, Holocaust, that's very dark. How do I overcome that? And then once they get in there, how do I make them feel like, they did the right thing by going there. So how did you approach this project? 
So I think it's an interesting philosophical shift. We can choose as people to be our best selves, even when it imperils our lives. And I think the reflection of Sam Boimel, one of the Holocaust survivors, recounts a moment where he's standing with his mother at one of the mass graves with the Nazis behind him. And his mother lets go of his hand, tells him to run, and gives him her sweater so he's not cold. And in that moment, I mean, that's one of the most courageous acts you can think of. I'm, I'm touching my heart. I mean, it gives me the shivers to think about that. What strength, what bravery, what love, what perspective that mother had in that moment. And what reflection of Sam to celebrate his mother's legacy and his escape in that moment. And he lived to tell about it. So when we can celebrate those moments of human greatness and strength, that takes a moment of tragedy and calls upon us as people to think about what we can do in the face of injustice. What can we do and what strengths do we all have to call upon to act differently? Well, hopefully none of us will be faced with such a terrible choice in such dire times. Can you tell us some of the other stories there that our listeners might relate to? Sure, sure. So Werner Koppel is a local Holocaust survivor. He escaped the death march to Auschwitz. He looked around, found an opening, and just sprinted. Made it to the woods, hid there until the Russian front came forth, and met his wife in a small nearby city got married and found his way to Cincinnati. And so even just that moment of bravery and courage of escaping that death march is a story of resilience in and of itself in Werner. But when he found himself through Cincinnati Museum Terminal, getting off that train and living in Cincinnati, one of the front page news stories, I think it was in 1948, was around a Holocaust doubter who wrote a story who questioned its reality. And Werner saw this opportunity, this bravery in himself to bring his perspective, his lived experiences, his leadership, his judgment, his forgiveness of that author of the article, and very quickly came out as a speaker, as someone who experienced the Holocaust and was one of the first people locally to tap into that within him and share his experiences. You mentioned that Werner came to the train station, which is now the museum center, Mm -hmm. which is where the Holocaust and Humanity Center is located. The historical significance is certainly not lost Mm -hmm. on us to try to picture these train loads of people coming into a community not knowing what to expect and making a new life here. And now we're able to share that moment with others who are coming to a museum with their children and their families in the same location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think Werner's story is one that he spoke out about intolerance and indifference and was one who shared that bravery and rose to the challenge of the moment. So in the second half of the Holocaust and Humanity Center, there are modern-day examples of people who spoke out like Werner did, who stood up, rose to the challenge of the moment, and demanded change. So those are examples from the 70s to today all over the United States and the world of people who are challenging injustice. Unfortunately, those newspaper headlines have not stopped. And there are incidents of violence and intolerance that 
aren't just relegated to 1945. Tell us a story, if you can. The two examples that you gave were Jewish people that had escaped with the resilience, but there were a lot of other people that were part of the cultural fabric of Germany, Austria, a lot of the countries there that really made a difference as well. And they are highlighted in that exhibit I have had the privilege of going through the Holocaust and Humanity Center the last time I was here in Cincinnati. And Mm. it is an amazing feeling to know that there is, in the midst of all the things that we do not celebrate in this world, that there are positive examples. Positive examples when people stand up for hate, even when it doesn't apply to them. Exactly. Even more so. Right, right. And that's the ultimate courage. Mm-hmm. So there's an example that's highlighted a bit throughout, as well as when you first walk into the Humanities Center, of a group of nuns who took in Zahavna Rendler. And those groups of nuns were supporting a lot of Jewish people coming in. Zahava, in particular, made fake papers for folks to escape. So it's just one small example of someone who, both the groups of nuns and Zahava, herself, who were resilient in that Mm -hmm. moment of hate, that time of hate. Very important to know that there are people that support you and that you're not alone. I can say that the exhibit itself, if you have an opportunity, and I have been to the Holocaust and Humanity Center in Washington, D.C. I have actually been to the Yad Vashem in Jerusalem as well. I have been to the museum in Berlin as well. So it sounds like I'm a junkie for the centers. <laughs> but the one in Cincinnati really touched me because it was so interactive. Part of it was I actually knew some of the people that were in these videos so that you could bring your children there and you would feel really comfortable that they were getting, in fact, there were children as I was going through the exhibit, they were getting a very connecting message. And young people really prefer the interactive in the video. What was your participation in that part of it? Yes, the trustees of the Mayerson Foundation are positive psychologists, and they bring about a strengths-based approach to work, all of their work. So you'll see in that interactive video that it makes a transition into the humanities gallery that only highlighting human despair does not bring out and does not inspire what's best in people. So if we were to leave it there, we missed an opportunity. We as a community missed the opportunity to inspire what's best in people. So you see that interaction change to a window of hope for the future and ask to oneself, a museum goer, what do they have in themselves that they can tap into to fight their own issues of injustice that they're experiencing or seeing in the world. And it does make that shift in a subtle but important Mm -hmm. way and a call to action. We have a responsibility to do that. Not only responsibility, but in our effort to be more effective, there's no sense doing it unless we're Mm. positively impacting people. And on the way out of the exhibit, this is my personal experience, you have an opportunity to look at your own life and your life of purpose and what are you doing or what do you plan to do in order to make this a better world? And so you sit there, and true to the video, it takes your picture, puts you up on a wall with all the other people that have been sort of visiting around the same time. And you get to make a commitment to yourself. And by expressing that commitment, it solidifies it, and it makes it, and you walk out feeling like, wow, I haven't done much, but I feel like I can do something, and I feel like I will keep this in my heart and my mind going forward. 
Jessica, you're hitting on something that's key to the center for Holocaust and humanity, and that's that upstanders are not always extraordinary people. They are ordinary people who made courageous decisions in a moment. And for us to leave any Holocaust center and feel like we can't be upstanders is a missed opportunity. So that call to action is that we're normal people, but we have the capacities to tap into our character strengths and do extraordinary things in being courageous. The Holocaust was a result of people being bystanders people not tapping into their strengths and saying, wait a minute, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And we have opportunities to call on that every day. And that experience and that example of the Holocaust Center is truly what is our metamorphosis as a family foundation and the things we want to fund, the ways that we want to inspire other people and the best of what's people in the world. Which is, of course, important in any age, but we've seen a lot of violence, much of it religious-based, against religious minorities or majorities. You know, some of it is Christians and Muslims and Jews all over. Do you have any plans to expand this approach and to support other initiatives in other places? Yes, we are in an active grant-making cycle right now called Activation Funding, where we are looking at this region's exemplars of activation. One of our partners in kind of getting to this space as a family foundation was the way that Starfire, as a local organization serving people with disabilities and their families, has changed as an organization. So maybe it would be best to explain Starfire through a story. So I live in Clifton Heights in Cincinnati, Ohio, with my husband and my dog, Quali. He's a six-pound Yorkie that uses a cat litter box. <laughs> so that is hilarious. And <laughs> I am <laughs> laughing. <laughs> <laughs> we take him around the community in Clifton, and we stumbled upon this pop-up puppy party in Clifton off of Ludlow. And it was this, like, cornered-off area that's not a dog park because our community does not have a dog park. And it was people of all walks of life from our community with their dogs. That's what I knew the pop-up party to be. Pop-up puppy party was a community-based way of bringing the community together. Only later did I find out that Starfire was the organization behind that who invested directly in the Melnick families, one of my neighbors, they gave the Melnick family some dollars to explore what their child with a disability loves and to do a project with those funds that bring out the best in their son. It was for the family to invent their own lives, not for a social service agency to tell them what they need to do. And that is a shift in the nonprofit space. If a person walks into a nonprofit as an agent, but they turn into an object, that is not what we want to be behind. We want to celebrate and activate and bring about someone's agency after they walk through that nonprofit door. And it begs a question, is a nonprofit an address in which change happens, or is it the community? And in the pop-up puppy party, the community was the agent there, the place of change, not an address of Starfire. So the way that they're working in bringing out what's best in families bringing out what's best in someone with a disability, that helped us better articulate what we want to fund and what we want to get behind and partner with as a family foundation. So I think that that speaks to an example of the type of things that we want to support. And Starfire is a wonderful organization, probably not as well known as many other organizations, but through this activity, we're able to extend their reach 
into the community. And I am known to quote my mother many times over. And one of the things that she always shared was, you have two ears and one mouth. Try to remember that. When people come to you, either to bring you something or to ask you something, you do not have to impose upon them what you think that they should be doing. And many of our organizations, including our funding organizations, they think that they're paid to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is the reason I asked you to share that is that it's such a perfect example of how to be more effective by asking the question, not by trying to create the answer before you've actually found out what's going on there. I'm nodding, Jessica, because I feel like you totally, totally get it. And it's a fundamental flaw in philanthropy to only be outcomes driven and not ask how the work is being done. And for Starfire, for Holocaust and Humanity Center, those are two key examples locally. The how of their delivery and their message is very much in line with the Mayerson Family Foundation. And so they're two examples that speak to looking at things differently to get a greater impact, looking at things differently to get the best impact and the best out of humanity. Yeah. Well, my mother had wonderful quotes. I quote her all the time. She also said, you only have one neck. How come you need so many necklaces? (laughs) She was a wonderful woman. She just really brought things right down to the present. (laughs) But even that is like, really, how much do we really need? How much do we really want? Mm -hmm. And that is all included in leading a purposeful life. So this work, I think, is so important. And it is data-driven in addition to driven by your heart and what you can actually make a difference in the world. So let's talk about your other role. And sometimes our avocations (laughs) become as as much of a commitment as our vocations. I remember that quite well. As the president of Impact 100, you have made a tremendous, pardon the expression, impact in the community. Tell us a little bit about Impact 100 what it does, and what some of the lessons learned are. Sure, sure. So Impact 100 is a women's collective grant-making network. We are a group of women who come together every year and pool our resources of $500 or $1,000. We pool all those dollars together and make grants of at least $100,000 in our nonprofit community. So you might be hearing that and thinking, wow, what Claire does professionally sounds a whole lot what she does as a volunteer through Impact 100. And it's absolutely true. The work informs each other. And it is something I feel like my work and my volunteer efforts are very aligned with who I want to be and what I want to focus my time and energy on. So Impact 100 is 500 women strong. It started here in this region, in the greater Cincinnati community, and is now all over the United States and Europe and Australia. So we are pretty humble here in the Midwest that it started right here and now is all over. This idea of women coming together and pooling their resources to do something bigger than we could do alone really resonates with folks. And giving circles as a methodology are on the rise, but we started here in Cincinnati back in 2001. So we are gearing up for almost 20 years of collective grant making, and this year we'll hit $5 million invested through women's pooled resources. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure, absolutely. So we have funded, oh goodness, I think 45 different projects in our region and in some of our focused areas. A good example would be La Soup is an organization locally that takes food that would otherwise be thrown away, 
make soup and make sure it goes into food deserts and or food under-resourced areas. They could scale their model by fivefold if they were to have four pieces of equipment just to do their work more efficiently. So that was a grant of $104,000 last year to help Le Soup expand their reach and make more efficient their operations. So that's a capital example. We have programmatic examples as well. My Cincinnati is a youth orchestra program rooted in the El Sistema model. And that program brings youth in five days a week to learn orchestral skills. And so our goal was to expand their program from three to five days a week. And that was programming costs. That was overhead and staffing costs to help them catalyze their efforts. How are the decisions made of what to grant? Jessica, that's a great question as to how decisions are made. So our women members can choose to be as involved or uninvolved as they wish to be. We have plenty of happy check writers who just cast a vote at the end of the year. But we have about one half of our membership who sits on one of our focus area committees, reviews the grant applications from the nonprofit community, puts their heads and hearts together, goes on site visits, reviews financials. It's a pretty rigorous process and determines who will be a grant finalist to present to the broader membership at large to vote. And does the broader membership meet to do that? Or is that done electronically? What's the, I know what the process is. How does it roll out? Right. So Impact 100 hosts their annual award celebration every fall. Women can vote electronically should they choose to and can't physically be there. But a good three quarters of our membership shows up to that annual award celebration to vote. And when we started talking about this particular podcast, we had talked about one of the scenarios that happened last year. We had an electronic voting error last year. We had six grant finalists, and we were voting to award four grants of $104,000. Well, our voting error told us about 12 hours after the event that the votes were counted wrong. So we had awarded publicly four people a grant of $104,000. You can imagine how excited they were. Two people left, less excited, two organizations left, and we had to make some decisions how to handle that. And that brings us to finding the positive and being (laughs) flexible. (laughs) Absolutely. How did you handle that? I think of my work at the Mayerson Foundation and how much it's influenced me personally and professionally in thinking about possibilities, thinking about what do we have, what assets are at our fingertips that we can leverage as people, what's best in us to make something right. And you can imagine the absolute horror when we found out there was a voting error. There's one thing to going and having 800 bake sales to come up with $208,000 to make the gap and award all six grant recipients, but that wasn't going to happen. And it also didn't feel right to take away money from someone who was awarded it the previous night and award it to someone else. All six grant finalists stood on their merits. They were strong nonprofit initiatives. They were well-vetted, financially sound. They all deserved one of those grants. Or they wouldn't have been there in the first place. Exactly. So how did we make sure, how could we make sure that all six were awarded funds? So that was the question on the table. I asked a core team of our executive board to simply think about possibilities and not think of this as we're destroyed. (laughs) We can get through this. Let's think of who we can call and simply explain the scenario and ask for support. 
And it was through one of those women who called another woman who was very familiar with the Impact 100 process, even made a suggestion that, you know what, the Impact 100 process is so rigorous, it's better than my foundations. (laughs) I'm going to give you the money. And so we had a local foundation step forward and say, we're going to help you out because we believe in your process. And all we had to do was ask. All we had to do was say, there's got to be some possibilities here. And within three hours, we were able to report back to our membership, one, the error in the spirit of transparency, and two, the solution, because we are better together. And that is the whole premise of Impact 100. And the fact that we could expand that network and ask other people for their help speaks to what's possible when we look at things differently. We look at things differently, which is what we started talking about in the first place. And stepping back and turning what felt, I'm sure, like a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I feel certain you lost a little sleep in the, <laughs> the short term on that one. Yes. But I think the transparency is really important also. That there is sometimes a tendency to say, oh, just leave it. Who will know? Who will know? You know, they've already left. They've already gotten there, you know, but you would know. And it would haunt the people that really are making such a positive difference. So how do you just sit back and take a look at that? The other thing that is a lesson for me there, and I'm a firm believer that you learn more from your mistakes and you learn from your successes, and this is a big one, is that you gave that foundation, the woman, an opportunity. You weren't asking her to do something that was wrong or, you know, you're trying to pitch something to her. You gave her an opportunity to be successful and to feel very good about what she was doing. And I feel certain that you were made sure that people knew that she stepped up to the plate also. And I think that really is the core of development for organizations, and in fact, sales for any organization. If you feel like you're pitching something and you're trying to persuade someone, not so effective. If you talk to someone, and again, two ears, (laughs) one mouth, and you listen to what their needs are, Mm -hmm. how much more important work you can accomplish. So it was a lesson in authenticity to Jessica. If we could just be authentic with what was happening, people were more willing to step up to the plate. Oh, what a a wonderful magnet for your organization, for people in the community to say, that's the kind of organization I want to be part of. And you can be, as you said, be part of it in so many different ways. And I remember when my colleague, who is in Impact 100, shared with me what had happened. And it was like an intake of breath. You could really feel what must have been going on at that time and how positive not only you and your leadership, but your whole organization must have felt about that. We're better together. Absolutely. Better (laughs) together. It's not just a slogan. It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Claire. There's so much more that we could talk about. I've known Claire for a long time when I was responsible for the leadership programs at the chamber. She is a graduate of Sea Change, my very first developed leadership program that I was responsible for, class eight. She has been named Cincinnati's 40 Under 40 by the Business Courier. She's been a YWCA rising star. And since you've listened to us for nearly the past half hour, I think you can see here why she has reached. But one of my favorite things 
is Claire's sense of humor and her sense of self-effacement. So I said, Claire, can you send me a bio? She says, I sort of don't love bios. So let me try this, she said. I enjoy dark chocolate. I can't sit for more than 45 minutes without needing to take a little lap around the room. Although I will tell you, she hasn't taken a lap yet. And I've developed a love for cardio dance, which no one, not even my husband, will witness ever. And you know that her dog uses a litter box. (laughs) What more do you need to know about my guest? Claire, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. And not only in a serious, but also in a humorous and well-intentioned way. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sometimes it's the little things that make a big difference. A post-it note and two minutes can make a huge difference in your workday. Find out more at talentmagnetinstitute.com slash post-it. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, Produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life. Reframing success in leadership.